0: Welcome to The Human Advantage, a Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I'm Major David Love from the Centre for Army Leadership, and I'll be the host of today's episode with our guest, Warrant Officer Class 1, Colin Kirkwood, the Academy Sergeant Major at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Sergeant Major, I know the Academy life can be fairly hectic, so thank you for taking the time to speak to us on today's episode. No problem. I guess recording a, a podcast is somewhat different from your day job around the academy. For those not so familiar with your role, or perhaps those aspiring to be the academy sergeant major at Sandhurst in the future, what does a typical day entail for you?
1: So I think as a academy sergeant major, people look at this person that's always in the service dress, shouting and screaming in the drill square. Actually, the role has evolved over the years, and now I definitely take on the mantle as the senior role model within the academy for officers, senior non commission officers, and, and obviously cadets like it's so important for me to be visible everywhere whether that's out and about watching lessons taking drill and um, visiting lectures i think it's one of those things where i want people to come and approach me i want them to know my face get to know me so it's much easier for them to, to talk to me i always found that as a regiment some major of a battalion you get your best information by being out and about all the time i'm, I'm definitely not one for being chained to a desk uh, I spend very little time in the office and 90% of my time is, is out and about. So I think that should be the modern Sergeant Major now, as out getting the information and you can learn so much from just visiting everywhere.
0: Historically, like you say, a Sergeant Major might have had a particular perception in the minds of, of junior ranks, whether that be junior officers at Sandhurst or whether it's junior soldiers within the unit. As someone that they might not want to engage with and actually will proactively avoid if they see them out and about, and I know you are really active around the academy, I see you everywhere. Um, do you find that as a particular barrier because of the status symbol of, uh, of the Sergeant Major or do, or do you find that you've broken down those barriers to to engage with people?
1: Um, no, I think there's still probably cadets and staff that hide when they see me coming. But generally, most of the time I'll stop chatting just to see how people are doing, ask them what they're doing with the day. And if I'm in the coffee shop having a brew and I'll always go over and speak to all groups of cadets and just find out what lessons they're on I'm very, very interested in what everybody's doing all the time. And I think if you can show you care and actually visit and remember people's names, it gives you so much when you're actually giving them some feedback because you remember little bits of each person because you talk to so many people. So I think for the minor percentage that do avoid me... um,
0: Probably doing something wrong, I guess.
1: Yeah, obviously. Or, yeah, not dressed correctly. Or they've got carrying something out of the naffy. Something totally random. But I would say I'm quite approachable. Most people don't mind coming up. And I think I broke down those barriers quite a lot by being everywhere. And I've just continued it.
0: I guess then one of the the key things you need to achieve is that building of rapport within the team. Uh, I I guess that runs through not just a position like you hold here, but, but whether or not you're a junior leader in a new unit. I mean, you might be newly assigned into your unit. You know, how, how important is the initial phase of building rapport and how that might lead to trust? Because it's pretty important, as you say.
1: It's massive. And I've always found we're very good at in the Army. This sort of humour breaks down barriers. But when I first got here, I sat at the table in the mess and there was loads of colour sergeants, staff sergeants, sat around there. No one would really talk for the first sort of couple of days. And I was really wondering what was going on. And I think it was this fear of this... You your figure. No one wanted to say anything. So it did take a couple of days before people started opening up and then we had this humour. And now I've got a really good relationship of the 60-odd colour saints we have here. And those little relationships has led to them coming to me now because they know that I'm not this one-directional, shouting, screaming person. But breaking down the barriers, building a rapport is key to relationship building, as we said. And I think if you can do that and get to know everybody, you'll have a great relationship wherever long your post lasts.
0: And I know you've already touched on it, but much of your role must revolve around you being a role model for the officer cadets undertaking training here at Sandhurst. But what is it that you think about providing exposure to one of the most senior soldiers within the army that's of value to officer cadets undertaking training to become commissioned officers?
1: I think as a camera scout major, you're in one of these roles now because you're commissioned. That you've experienced everything in a battalion that they will see or a regiment or a corps you you ultimately are the mentor to 15 warrant officer class ones in the academy as well as everyone else and when you get to this sort of position you've seen thousands of officers over your career um you've probably seen hundreds in your own battalion you know what good looks like you know what bad looks like it's key that you can pass on this information through various talks through being around all the time again building the rapport the relationship but that mentorship and that coaching to ensure that we get the best product out here at the end of, end of the commission course and ensure they've had a good look at what good senior non-commissioned officers look like and brilliant warrant officers. So when they go to their regiments, they know, yeah, I saw the best at Sandhurst. I now know what to look for when I go to my own course of regiments.
0: I guess you are the custodian of the values and standards in the British Army. I mean, these just aren't words, are they? You know, if you really live by them, they mean something. What do they mean to you?
1: All the values and standards here at Sanders are taken so seriously. It's something you live and breathe. You have to live and breathe when you leave here because you, as the officer, as a leader, are looked at as this pillar of integrity, this pillar of everything that's right. When soldiers look towards you, they're looking at the person that should do the right thing all the time. There's never a day off being a leader. And if you have those values and standards, you can't go left or right. You know if you live by them, that is essentially your framework for being a good leader
0: you've built this wealth of experience. And I know that you were also an instructor at the Army Training Regiment in Purbright, as well as serving here before in Sandhurst as a Colour Sergeant. During that time, which is a period that spans approximately two decades, hopefully that doesn't make you feel uh, too old. How do you feel the Army's understanding and training of leadership and the development of leaders has changed over that period?
1: I think it's changed quite a lot. I chose to go to Purbright rather than um, Catrick after a tour of Iraq. I just wanted to experience the the sort of different regiments that weren't in infantry. Um, teaching females, males from other corps. I thought it was really important for my own development, looking forward to potentially becoming an instructor in the future at Sandhurst. And I think I was very arrogant, probably as a young search commander. I thought it was a lot better than I was. Um, and I think that I wasn't humble enough to ask for help. Um And I didn't take criticism very well, which ultimately led to me probably being an average instructor as a young search commander. It wasn't until I got to Sandhurst and started mixing with higher quality sergeants on the selection cadre that I probably thought to myself, I need to up my game here and try and discover all my sort of weaknesses and flaws and get them out in the open. And it was ultimately Sandhurst when I got selected here that turned me into a better soldier, a better instructor and sort of more focused on being more professional. I think the current instructors, this generation now, they're a lot better than I am, a lot better than I was when I was a Lance Sergeant and a Colour Sergeant. I think people are more accepting of feedback to develop themselves a lot better, which is it's great to see. And and young Colour Sergeant, Staff sergeants these days, suck up knowledge and then they'll they'll take it in and they'll give it to the Office of Cadets and they, they don't mind being mentored, coached, assessed, um, lessons assured. Uh, and again, a lot, a lot more confident professional than I was. It just it seems that the, the current generation now are just more aware of the things available to them, more aware of the surroundings.
0: I guess the instructor of 20 years ago is quite different from the instructor of today and for all the things that you've just said. But the army has changed as well over that time. I mean, we only wrote down the, the values and standards within the army in year 2000. And I know you've got a generation of instructors and people that went through the transition period and also started from that point onwards. Do you think the professionalisation of our understanding about leadership was maybe one of the drivers of, of that change?
1: I think when I first joined, I was still heavy on the, the senior soldier and the sort of almost like a bullying aspect of being bullied into doing things. There was no understanding of should follow these values and standards that were literally, we tell you do something, you're doing it. I think by professionalising it, writing it down, and then educating everybody, the army became a much better place after 2000. It really, really did. I noticed a marked change from when I joined, when I started to become a non-commissioned officer. It was being led by younger, more adaptable non-commissioned officers. Uh, Leaders have been a bit more um, approachable as well, not abrasive everything changed. It was like almost like a really, really gradual period over a couple of years as we started heading into the Iraq and the headache the generations where this leadership came through it was a bit was a bit more susceptible to thinking outside the box, essentially.
0: It's an important point that you touch on there because much of the Army's business is training to fight, particularly in the context of operations that are only becoming more complex, more interconnected, more technologically enabled. Yeah, much of our developing understanding about leadership and how to put that into practice as an effective leader revolves around increasing our levels of empathy, uh, compassion, self-awareness, and really spending time to get to know those within your team on a more personal level, whether that's their drivers, their motivators, but as well as the ideas of things like embracing change and, and challenge and the importance of responsible followership. Are these approaches ones that you feel are at odds with what we're asking people to do on operations, which is engage and kill the enemy and be prepared to to give the ultimate sacrifice if necessary? Or are they complementary approaches?
1: I think they're complementary. You must get to know your team. You must build relationships. You must build a rapport. And you are essentially building that trust up and down. They trust you. You trust them. They're going to work for you. They're going to want to do what you want them to do because they trust in you as a leader. You build relationships in small ways by doing various different things. It can be something simple as sorting out pay to deliver in clear direction. But ultimately, all working as a team and being approachable, humble as a leader, listening to ideas in your team, because you may join your team as a leader. You've got no experience apart from what you've been taught at Sandhurst or whatever other training staff you've been to. But there might be a young soldier in there who's been in the army for five, ten years and done a couple of tours. Great leaders, I always found in my past, would listen to the the juniors amongst them and get ideas. It may not be the greatest ideas, but they they are passing on some knowledge of the experience. And they've seen three, four, five, six platoon commanders in their time. And they can judge pretty quickly someone who takes ideas or someone who is just asking for the sake of asking. Building that relationship is definitely the key to
0: to work in as a team to then achieve whatever mission you've been tasked. I just wanted to draw on your own experience, particularly on operations in Afghanistan. I attended a lecture recently where I heard you give a quite stark and honest talk to those nearing the completion of their training and about to step into the realities of their new unit. But I think irrespective of whether you're an officer cadet going through Sandhurst or a new entrant going through basic training, it was a fascinating and quite frankly harrowing example of what it means to be a good junior leader. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing that experience with us on this podcast.
1: No problem. In 2009, on Christmas Eve, we received a phone call to say we're deploying to Afghanistan two weeks early in January, instead of the, the original date in February. We weren't told why, and clearly, as a platoon sergeant, nearly promoted, you're worried of uh, what this is going to mean. So you you make sure all your soldiers are in tune, they're all going to turn up. So we got to Afghanistan. We were in between Herak 11-12 at the time, and we were primarily trained as a warrior task force. Uh, out there. The second time we'd been on this role, we got there and actually we had to adapt to heli-assault operations. The mission was Op Moshrak, one of the biggest helicopter operations at the time. And We landed and that eight days was was rough. A few casualties. First time a lot of us have been in contact. I think a lot of people are looking forward to the first time they ever say contact front um, and they're involved in something. By the second, third, fourth, tenth time, you don't really want to be in a contact anymore, especially when you start seeing casualties. And seeing casualties, friends, young soldiers in your platoon, it does affect your decision making. You become more aware of, of putting people's lives at risk, where you're planning. So it got to the sort of last day after a few casualties in all the different platoons, we were marking a helicopter landing site and my platoon commander being the leader he was really really great great bloke he went out and checked the helicopter landing site in the middle of a plough field in the dark and suddenly flash of green 50 cal from across a canal shot him in the legs and essentially went down um and we're under fire we didn't know at the time it was friendly from across the canal they thought they'd seen an enemy even though we'd all the normal sort of lights on and stuff like that and your, your IR asylums. and he was giving his own sit rep cool as you like even though half his leg was sort of missing. And then one of the search commanders who we mention later on Sergeant Walker ran straight through the fire to give him morphine and we cazovac him. As we landed in Bastion the company commander tapped me on the shoulder and he said um Sergeant Kirkwood you're now doing commander and that was it and I think at that moment I was nervous. I think stepping up to be the person in charge, stepping up to be the person that makes the decisions was tough to think of because I'd been the guy who's involved in all the admin. I was the person that made things happen to ensure the missions happened. So for me, I was very nervous that will the platoon listen to me? Will the platoon do what I'm going to say? And ultimately, will the company commander put me as a lead platoon? Will he keep me as a lead platoon? Um, and thankfully, I think that trust from the company commander, they say to me, Sergeant Kirkwood, yes, you're going to lead platoon, um, we're still going to crack on. I, I felt so empowered to know that he trusted me as a platoon sergeant to take over the platoon commander role and continue as that spearhead platoon. Uh, it was, um, yeah, a great boost. And then I sort of got into the operation. We're under fire. The company commander had given me a task to get from A to B in a certain time so another part of an operation can happen. Patrol patrolling, we come under such heavy fire, we're all in a ditch. Uh, no one would pop the head up. It was very it was hard to see where the enemy was, but we pinned down, the rounds were landed around us. I had the company commander's voice in the back of my head saying, You've got so many minutes to get there. So I said to my two IC, who was a corporal at the time, I said, I'm gonna go. Um, so my plan was to get up, zigzag forward, and fire as we we're running forward to try and keep the enemy's head down so we could get across this field. So I got up. I started zigzagging forward and it was one of those moments when I felt as if it was 5-10 minutes alone in this field getting shot at. It was probably 15-20 seconds but I was so alone thinking in that moment are the troops going to follow me here? Are they going to think I'm absolutely crazy trying to go across here under fire? Or are they going to be with me? So after it felt like an age, I looked at my left eye and the Lance Cobble was with me on the left. I looked at my right eye and one of the non-commissioned officers stood up. The guardsman probably paused for another 5 seconds but then got up, and we were this arrowhead, zigzagging forward, fire manoeuvring to get to the other side of the field. We got there, the enemy had bugged out, and we managed to meet up with the other platoon to crack on with the mission. But um, just those moments there, and I thought, right, now they've followed me into this really dangerous situation. I think I've now got their trust they're going to follow me, they're going to listen to what I do, listen to what I say. So that was my first sort of sigh of relief there. And then um, we pushed on. We'd done various other tasks and missions, we then flew back to Bashan and we continued on with another mission, which I'd planned. I, I got given a laptop and um, it was a live drone feed of a compound we were going to go and attack and, and sort of fight our way into. The company kind of left me alone, I did my rehearsals. it was fantastic. Sergeant Walker, who again had, had rescued Mr Murley Gotto, was key for me in having a really trusted Sitch commander as my right-hand man to take the troops away and do rehearsals, absolutely without even being told really really good non-commissioned officers in my platoon who knew what i needed as a commander and they just done it because we knew each other quite well um we got on the mission i planned it we got there we fought in the compound and then we went on a mission to clear a taliban area and i think this is one of the, the hardest moments and i see this to the cadets all the time we got contacted heavy fire again accurate fire and then a pause and you hear the immortal words man down You're thinking, oh, my God, as a leader, who is it? What is it? What's happened? And then the ZAP number will come over, and I knew it was Sergeant Walker's ZAP number. I ran forward, and all the troops in the front part of the multiple were all down behind a bun line, again, rounds, pinging everywhere. And I'm stood up, under fire, stupidly in the open, looking at Sergeant Walker and his grey face. In my mind, I knew he was dead, but I was praying that he wasn't. And then there was another casualty. A guy's been shot through the chest. So two casualties, and everybody, every single person in the the bun line is not firing back, they're looking at me, what do we do now? It was that moment, and I was frozen. Felt like five minutes again. And it's a really, it's like slow motion. You've got the potential death of a friend. You've got another guy's in your baton. You've got enemy unsighted in front of you, firing really accurate fire, and you get no fire support, what do you do? And again, the time passed. It was probably 20 seconds. I just started dishing out direction. We caz we ended up suppressing, and people started listening. They needed to hear someone giving clear direction. No matter what it was, right or wrong, they needed direction, and I gave them it. I managed to all get back. And I think the moment I hit home was when the casual got taken me in helicopter, we were back in the compound, the contact still happening with the Sangers, and the company commander called us all in and told us that Sarton Walker was dead. I think 110 men in that compound all broke down started crying. The effect of losing someone who's so well-respected and so popular was, was devastating. But then we had to go back out, we had to continue the fight, there was no time to grieve, so Things like that, emotional moments do affect your judgement and it's hard to think after something like that where you've lost casualties or you lost someone how do you motivate the troops to back out and patrol and fight the next day Uh, and I think when the troops did come back out the next day with me I thought we'd we'd created this this bond that that will last forever now but it was so important to me to have them all with me and to show the company commander that we are willing to go back out
0: I guess it's really difficult when something like that has occurred and you, you lose someone that is that is so close, not just to you, but is probably a, a big member of, of the team. I can only imagine how devastating that would have been, not only for you as a friend, um, but also the impact it would have had on, on the other individuals. And, and like you say, trying to motivate them to go back out into essentially the same situation again. Um, I mean, I mean, did you get... Did you get time to process what had happened, or did you have to go straight back out? I mean, how, how did you as a, a team come to terms with that loss?
1: The company corners was very good. Uh, one thing I remember is, one of the better company corners I've ever had. The first thing he says we got in after the news, took us over to my area where the platoon was, and we sat around the fire for 10, 20 minutes. And we shared stories, this bonding moment, everybody getting things off their chest, and there were laughs, there were tears. That initial talking about it with someone like the company commander, just us and him, was massive. He'd said, I'm going to stand you down for the next part, um, because I said to him, sir, please don't think that we don't want to go back out. We are willing to go back out and take our share. So it was really tough. We we're really tight rotation, constantly under fire. The IED threat was horrible. And I didn't want us to miss out. Yes, we couldn't grieve, but we would grieve in the future when we went back to camp, but he, he was very smart, he stood us down, the other two platoons took up the, the slack and that meant the world to because when it was our time to go back out we were full gusto and I think just a little small thing like that with the company commander stuck me for the rest of the time. It's, it's, some people can take more pain to, to make it easy for other people to, to do other things. A little humble, approachable company commander has given me a lot of life lessons actually.
0: I was going to say, actually, that sounds like that moment when one individual can have a clear change in the direction and your, your outlook of life, that must stick in your mind as a as a moment where he acted as a, as a role model. And Is that, for you, the epitome of being a leader, to being able to step up and, and take that burden for others?
1: Yeah, yes, definitely. I think he is one of the role models. I just look at him as this really calm commander under a lot of pressure, soldiers getting injured, soldiers dying. But he knew what was best for each platoon. And he wasn't afraid to make decisions to make it easier for a platoon to stand down and other platoons to take the burden, which they voluntarily did. But he worked so well as a team it fostered this team spirit, this relationship, and there was a trust between everybody. No matter the casualties, no matter who was in command, everybody knew the roles. There was clear direction. Yeah, it meant so much. And I think if you've got that in, in a tough, dangerous environment, when you've got people above you who know what they're doing, and it's that trust thing again, you want to work for them. I would feel devastated if I did something wrong, let them down. That's how much an effect he had on me. And I like to think that's how I do my my daily business now. I never want to be the person that shouts and screams. I want people to think, oh, my God, I've let him down. I've let him down. That's got more of effect than anything else. Um, if someone has made a mistake and they realised it, and they go, I never want to let him down again.
0: It's like that connection on a personal level. And you don't want to let, essentially, someone who feels like a family member down because... You've been through so much together, and I know you've referred to it a lot in terms of trust, but trust is a really difficult thing to build. And it's a really easy thing to say, but it's a really difficult thing to put into practice. Um, What have you learned from others, or what do you do now that helps develop trust?
1: I think initially, as with everything, you need to talk, to listen, you need to get to know the people that are in your team. Well, that's a new platoon, a new company, you need to essentially introduce yourself and give an honest opinion to people and, and that's where the relationship building starts. And then once you get to know each other, you are then picking up all these little things from each person and helping them out along the way with various other things. It's also asking opinions of people, it's getting their ideas, because you can have the best plan in the world. And if you don't ask these people, they'll never want to speak up. And again, if you're not asking them, you're not building that relationship. So. Talking and listening, getting to know everybody, giving clear direction, but essentially listening before you come up with your plan. And once your plan is there, it's everybody working together to make sure that the plan is a success. And once you start having success, the relationship builds more and people start taking lessons from you. They start looking at you um, and then the trust is there. It's a two-way street. It's gold dust, that initial relationship building.
0: You're in a really valuable position where you've come through the ranks of of being a non-commissioned officer. You're now Command Sergeant Major, albeit at the Academy here, and you've bridged the gap between non-commissioned officer and commissioned officer. When you talk about how you might build relationships and rapport, is there a danger of opening up too much? Because there's got to be some delineation between keeping face as a commander and a leader and, and, and that over-familiarity. And how do you balance that?
1: There's definitely a line. With experience, you know when you can't be too friendly. Yeah, and I always used to tell my soldiers this. Um, Colin telling John to go through a door because we've got a friendly relationship and a dangerous situation is not going to work because that person can turn around to you and say, oh, Colin, why do I have to go around? Can you know, pick someone else? Because you've never really had that that clear delineage of commander and, and follower. But Sergeant Kirkwood telling Garzman Blah to go through the door as an order works when you've had that relationship. So you can be friendly, you can have a good relationship, but as long as there's times when they know you are the commander and that's given clear direction and buy-in from everybody, but it's that respect and that professionalism. You as the commander are the one that sets the tone for the relationship. And you can't always be the good guy. You have to be the bad guy sometimes and you have to deliver bad news, but if you don't play favourites and you don't be too friendly with some and not friendly with others, you need to treat all your platoon your troop the same, Um, but as long as you see that you're professional, they will work for you. You know when people are serious, you know when this is time to step up now.
0: And I guess that touches on the topic of followership and this relationship that we know with leaders, you know, it's a two-way thing, you can't happen particularly well without followers and good and good followership how important is it that we get the followership right as well as the leadership
1: to enable the leadership you need to have good followers if you've got a few members of your team who are not good followers they are burdens to the team and then the platoon ends up spending more energy on the people that are not doing well at their job that are being a burden for everybody and this can be something as simple as fitness um ill discipline being late all the time And it bleeds into the last thing I said, constantly, is trust. Can you trust the people that are doing the things wrong to do the right things in your operations? Everything's got a purpose. So you all need to be good followers to the person that is in charge, who ultimately wants to be the best leader, but you both have to help each other. The the leader needs to know his job and have to trust the people below him. The followers need to know that the leader can do his job. Ultimately, trust that person. And I've always been a, a follower. I always try and do my best to support the people above me that are making the decisions. Because ultimately, the people in the positions of power have got difficult decisions to make. Uh, and it becomes even more difficult if people below them can't do their job or unwilling. So, yeah, definitely. It's funny,
0: you reminded me of a, a quote 10% of the people in your unit will take up 90% of your time. And that's, that's a real difficult thing for commanders and leaders, whether that's at section level platoon level, company level, what's the best way of dealing with the more difficult people that take up all that time? Is it a simple case of getting rid? Or is it coaching and mentoring?
1: Invest in them. I tell the cadets at the end of the term, there's no bad apples. There's always a reason or something behind the scenes that's making that person act the way they act. And you will get down to it if you've honest conversations with the person and get People that have seen them, however long they've been in the army, there's a reason they've been difficult. And it's up to you to get to the bottom of that and see how you can develop and coach that and mentor that out of them. Uh, And ultimately, if you show that you care a lot of the time, people will start working. Because sometimes difficult soldiers, and I've been a difficult soldier as a young Garza, and I really have, I thought I knew everything. I knew nothing. But I was always very difficult. And when the platoon commander used to sit me down for a one-on-one conversation and say, right, you're doing this wrong i to be brutally honest with you and I was like wow I almost actually came out and said it because people were always just dis- dismiss you as a bad carsman and they leave you out of the decisions leave you out of the sort of team building events you're not getting chosen for something there's something wrong so I was glad the platoon commander was very honest with me when I was very young and I think that helped me open my eyes to the bigger picture and realise that actually i better start screwing it up a little bit here
0: I guess that's where the rapport building and the relationship building helps because I guess once you've once you build that rapport and you, you've opened yourselves up and you, you have a good grounding in a relationship, actually, when you when you get that feedback, you, you do actually accept it as, as, as an area you might need to develop. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're providing feedback up rather than down, and, and how how did you go about that?
1: I've always been comfortable talking to to senior ranks, junior ranks. I I find myself in the position now, and I did when I was a regional sergeant major. I think when when you're confident in your own ability and you've got a wide experience and knowledge, you are comfortable giving feedback, whether that's someone's making a plan, someone's doing some questionable leadership stuff. And again, I keep going back to it. If the advice is coming from someone they trust and they know, they will listen. So I can give advice to senior ranks, junior ranks, and because... They know that it's going to be honest, and I'm trying to help them out to then set the example for other people. So I think you just you've just got to pull people to the side. You really have to be honest with them, and without being disrespectful, you can say, "Sir, ma'am, you're not dressed correctly today. Can you please square that away?" I think you're confident enough, and, and you can you can easily give that advice to those above you.
0: Yeah, I, I think I was subject to it maybe a week or so ago with my sleeves, <laughs> and, uh, and and now they are firmly around my wrists. Um. Have you ever found times when there are people who aren't willing to accept that type of feedback and criticism?
1: Yes, over my sort of 24, 25 years, I've met a few people that won't listen. I think that's where you as a young soldier or a, or a whatever rank, warrant officer, trying to give the feedback, you become a bit dismayed when people don't listen. You then go to other people. You then seek other role models or people of your peer group and you then have to go to them because maybe they might may not listen to you but they will listen to someone else and it's about sharing your thoughts again without being disrespectful um, but sometimes you have to find an approach that's going to actually hit the target. And I think when people actually hear it from someone that they listen to they might get through. Um, that is the best way I've found. I use Scottscars as an example. I think when we moved to Aldershot in 2015 a lot of the regiment was quite unhappy. There was a lot of ill-discipline through various different means we were in a place we didn't want to be, and the troops were nine hours from home. It took a lot for the command officer to turn that around into a sort of positive state where people wanted to stay. And again, it's just the, it's the ability of the commander to get around everybody, find out what's going wrong, various different avenues, not just through the officers, some majors, but through the guardsmen. Find out what's wrong. And if you suddenly find by talking to a variety of different private soldiers, guardsmen, that we live too far away from home, then a simple thing like adjusting the work week, a simple thing like doing PT on a different day to get people out the road earlier, adjusting the barrack guard system so people not doing seven barrack guards in 20 days, little things like that were gold dust, us and then good commanders can build on these little initiatives. And the battalion just became a really happy place. It was all these little wins, but it was built on the basis of good leadership and getting us in a really good place. So, yeah, I've witnessed toxic leadership in the past, but I've also witnessed little acts that turn everything around.
0: I think that that brings us full circle, really, because getting out and speaking to people, it's how you can really get to the root of those issues. And if you're not carving the right time out in your diary, you can't get at those problems. Is that a fair say? It's a pretty pretty important skill to have.
1: Yeah, no one's going to come to my office in the academy because generally you only go to the offices in the academy quarters if if you come to see someone specifically, or you're in trouble. So I think it's important to be out on the ground. And again, once people are comfortable, they will tell you their problems. And if someone tells me, I think this is wrong, I'll go and sort it. And I'll tell them, again, they're trusting you because you, you come across as this person who's when you're told something, you're actioning it and get back to people because people appreciate feedback, especially with problems.
0: Mm. I'm uh, conscious that our time is rapidly drawing to a close, so I'd like to ask you a few quick-fire questions, if I may. No
1: problem. Can
0: you define what effective leadership means to you in your
1: own words? Building relationships to ultimately ensure that people want to work for you and complete the tasks or missions you're given.
0: What is the most important leadership lesson that you've learned and why?
1: Lesson listen to people and action the stuff that they say
0: who's the most inspirational person that you have ever worked with and why
1: it's hard to pick up one person but there's a few command officers of the regiment who again have took over difficult situations and turned things around by listening by acting on little things that make the most sense but actually had the sort of guts to go through with it and i think those are the most inspirational we all need role models Uh, But I think if if you've got good leaders doing good things, they can definitely inspire you to then continue it and and be professional in your job.
0: Can you recommend a book that every junior leader should read?
1: The best book I've read on on leadership, I think it was Rommel's biography. I can't remember who it's from, but essentially it talked about his time in the First World War, Ski Battalion. Going through the academy, but he cared so much about his soldiers, not what we'd done in World War II and all stuff like that, but that First World War stuff, it's so much about training, caring for your soldiers, the pay, everything, just about leading by example. It was really impactful, actually, and I always come back to it, but yeah, definitely Ronald's biography.
0: And if you were to give one piece of advice to a young private guardsman, uh, Colin Kirkwood, walking through the doors of a new unit, what would that be?
1: Volunteer for a lot more stuff. I think we're too we're too scared and nervous when we turn up to the regiments that you don't really want to put yourself out of your comfort zone. I wish <laughs> I'd put myself out of my comfort zone a lot more. I would have done a lot more stuff. I'd have more experience. I was a early non-commissioned officer and promoted really early. I didn't really have any experience. I don't think I added much to the party. Whereas if I'd volunteered for more courses, I think I would have been an all round better soldier.
0: Yeah, no, that's really great. Sergeant Major, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. I'm sure everyone listening will agree that this was a fascinating insight to your role as the Academy Sergeant Major here at Sandhurst, and the value of exposure to positive role models such as yourself. And also thank you for your frank, open and honest insights into your time on operations in Afghanistan. It really does exemplify the realities of what we're training our junior leaders to face on operations in the future.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Human Advantage. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the Army or the UK Government. If you have enjoyed this episode, you can also find more about the Centre for Army Leadership as well as a range of leadership resources on our website and social media channels.